One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Thanks for downloading this podcast of NewsHour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and I've got Elizabeth Davis, producer, with me here. And Elizabeth, before we get on to this week's programme, just tell us about uh, a trip we've got in mind for April. Uh, Yes, we'll be coming to the United States for a few weeks. Um, I know lots of you out there in the US do listen to the programme. And so we just wanted to let you know and say if you have any passion projects or burning issues, things you're interested in that you would love for us to do either a NewsHour Extra on or some pieces for our sister programme NewsHour, which you might listen to as well, please do get in touch and let us know. We'd love to hear your suggestions. We've got a new email. We do. It's uh, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Uh, or you can tweet us as well, of course, uh, which is uh, at bbcnhextra. OK. Really. And uh, what about this week? Uh, so this week, we are looking at the internet. Now, I uh, often get teased, I think, by uh, you, Owen, and the rest of the team about my uh, lack of ability to go even sort of five minutes without uh, checking my five phone minutes. or any kind of internet access. Five seconds. Um, anyway, obviously, living in London, we have access to pretty fast internet, pretty decent internet, and that is not true for most of the world. And it's been an issue I've been quite interested in looking into for quite a while. So I, don't, I can't ask how old you are, but I could ask, you know, when you were a toddler, did you have, were you connected? Uh, no, I think a toddler is a bit extreme. I mean, I first remember using the internet when I was about 10 years old, probably, 9 or 10, living in California. And you've been lost ever since. Have you ever read a book since? <laughs> Of course, I have read books, many of them on my Kindle, downloaded from the internet. All of your Kindle, of course. Um, But no, I mean, we here consume a lot of our news on the internet. I mean, and we're lucky to be able to. It means we can follow stories from all around the world, which means one of the stories I've been following for the past year or so has been this ongoing, well, fight is probably the wrong word, but a controversy in India with Facebook and a programme it was proposing to offer free internet access to okay. lots of people. Well, we will be explaining that in the, in the podcast. So let me just say who we're speaking to this week. It's Aaron Sukumar. He's in Delhi, head of the Cyber Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation. It's an Indian think tank. We've got Nanjira Sambuli in Nairobi. She's the research lead at iHub, a facility that helps get tech startups started, uh, an incubator. And we have Kojo Bwachi in London. He's the deputy director of the Alliance for Affordable Internet, and that's linked to Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the man who invented the World Wide Web. And you may remember he appeared at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics saying the internet is for everyone. And let's start with you, Kojo, just to get some of the basic facts before we talk about some of the rights and wrongs of some of these issues. How many people have access to the internet? So about 44% of the globe of the world's population is online, which in absolute terms is about 3 billion people. 3 billion online, so offline, if we call them offline, uh, it'd be more like, what, three, 4 billion? 4 billion offline, and the challenge is you can't look at it in such simplistic terms. If you look at the difference between regions... You'll find, for example, in developed countries that 85% of people are on, online, while in uh, less developed countries or developing countries, you have 35% of people are online. So between Europe, where 70, 77% of people are online, and Africa, where 20% of people are online, there's a huge difference. And if you looked at Africa and split that up, where would the lowest 
levels of internet access be? There are some startling examples. Ethiopia, 1.9% of people use the internet. Malawi, 5%. Liberia, 5%, for example. And then you have more developed countries in terms of internet access, like South Africa or Kenya, where more than 40% of people are using... And at the other end of the scale, the countries with the highest rates? European countries, you have Denmark, which rates very highly, South Korea in Asia... A range of countries uh, across uh, more developed regions have very, very high rates. OK, Koji, thank you for that sort of brief introduction to the, to the problem, as it were. And we're now going to discuss some of the solutions to it. And particularly in this first half of the programme, a solution offered by Facebook. And there's a lot of controversy about this. Uh, it first came up with something called Internet.org. It's now been renamed Free Basics. And in India, lots of countries have it, but in India... The government's telecoms regulator has just said free basics is not for India, nor any services like it. So why did they take that decision? What did they object to? For a basic explanation, here's Simon Atkinson, editor of the BBC's India Business Report. Free basics is something that Facebook's rolled out in dozens of countries around the world, from Bangladesh to Zambia. You might have heard it referred to by its old name, internet.org. It's an app that gives people access to some websites via mobile phones without having to pay any data charges. The sites you can access differ from country to country. Government information pages, weather, health services, news, sometimes including the BBC. Oh, and of course Facebook, along with the messaging system it owns, WhatsApp. Facebook sees free basics as a way of getting poorer people online. It says it's not about commercial advantage but using the internet to help people lift themselves out of poverty. So our mission is to give everyone in the world the power to share what's important to them and to connect every person in the world. It gives the example of a chicken farmer in Zambia whose business has benefited since being able to get online. Now that I'm using internet.org, whenever my chickens are ready, I would post an ad and I know more than half of my stock will be sold. I started with 200 chickens, and my current production is 1,000. And this is all because information is just at the fingertips. But while most countries allowed free basics to launch without too much debate, it's been a different story here in India. And that's because objectors say it goes against net neutrality, the principle that all parts of the internet should be accessed at the same price and same speed, No favouritism for some sites over others. A high-profile comedy group got behind the campaign. Tell the government that you want net neutrality and the real net neutrality, not some watered-down, compromised, telco-friendly definition. Tell the government that you do not want telcos controlling what you access on the internet and tell them that they cannot charge differently for different websites. So that way we can say, Happy Internet Independence Day, India. And it wasn't just Facebook they objected to. India's biggest telecoms network, Airtel, proposed something similar before backing down. The country's telecom regulator took the protest seriously. It started a consultation. More than a million and a half people responded. And this week, Free Basics was banned by the regulator. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg says he hopes to find a way to make Free Basics legal here. He's got a fight on his hands. Well, there we are. That was Simon Atkinson giving us uh, some of the issues that have caused all this controversy and debate in India, and we'll explore those in greater depth. But first of all, what does it actually look like, this Free Basics? And I think, Nanjira Samuli, you've actually seen it, haven't you? So can you just talk us through what, what it is, what it looks like? 
Uh, right. So it is an application that you do have to download. Um, and I think that varies depending on the type of phone you're using. They've made it accessible for a range of phones from what we call feature phones to smartphones where you download an app, say from the app store. So on the front end of it is a series of sites that you sort of plug into, the BBC being one of them. But what's really interesting is now when you want to say comment on a news story on the BBC, then you have to click out of the Free Basics app and it uh, it does notify you that you're leaving the internet. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing. You can't actually have videos on it because they really try to work with low bandwidth, data text heavy sort of sites. So everything else above that, you do have to go to sort of what's now called the main internet or the full internet. Okay, so what you're saying is that it's a free service, but Mm -hmm. it's limited. And from what you've just said there, the the two biggest limits are you can't post comments on blogs and stuff, so you can't upload like that, and you... You can't see videos, so that's that's quite a big restriction. Mm-hmm. Text-heavy, low-resolution imagery um, and no videos, essentially, is how it works. Yeah, and, and, and I guess uh, let's bring in Aaron Sukumar here. The point about this is that this is a cheap way of doing it, isn't it? So it, if you don't make it very data-heavy, it makes it more possible to make this available. That seems uh, correct. Uh, when I think they offered, I think it was called Freenet, and uh, Freenet would pretty much do some basic internet browsing or surfing uh, with some of the applications that Facebook itself had selected. And most of these applications, I think, were were English language applications. Okay, so we now know what we're talking about. We've got this service that's being offered by Facebook. It's a lot of people who are not online. They're saying, look, we'll get you online. It's a limited service, but that's better than nothing. Uh, So Kojo Bwachi, what do you think? I mean, uh, India has said no to this. What do you think? It's, it's more complex than whether it's good or bad. The major problem for many people with uh, free basics is that people can't see the whole internet for free. It's not uh, that the service is free. It's that people then don't have the whole internet. And Najiru um, alluded to, to one of the key concerns that people have. It will be the operators or Facebook or any other company that provides a zero rated services so it's important to remember that zero rated services are not just facebook okay zero the, rated services I, 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 there are so many bits of jargon in this I, right. I, i'm just gonna have to stop you when you use <laughs> so, it so zero rated services are things like free basics so zero rated services are things like free basics right. so the debate has been india against facebook but if, in the analysis that a ai or the alliance for affordable internet is doing uh, zero rated services being rolled out Okay, so just again to explain, there are companies like Wikipedia, I think, and Google that are also sort of playing around in this area and seeing what they can do. So together they're called zero-rated services. So you're saying that you do have a problem with the fact that on this service, it may be free, which is great, but it is too limited. As Sir Tim Berners-Lee has said, we would like to give all of the people all of the internet all of the time. So for us, India's wish to do that, which has driven this regulation, which seems to be part of the reason why they've justified this regulation, is in keeping what we've, with what we would like. Aaron, it seems to me that you know, if, if, you, if you do what India's done, you're saying that people, you know, it's fine for you because you're probably online. I mean, of course you'll be online. But that some people out in remote rural areas, you know, you're saying they can't have anything. So, you know, it'd be better for them to have nothing rather than what Facebook's offering. The debate here has been sharply polarised, and you're right, the net neutrality debate arrived in India long before Facebook, but Facebook has become sort of the poster company for this debate now, and people legitimately feel 
that some internet provided at affordable rates or free of course if that's the case is in fact better than having no internet at all on the other side there is this concern that facebook might become their idea of the internet for many first generation internet users in india and there are millions of first generation internet users who are going to come online in the next 5 uh, to 10 years for them their conception of the internet might be facebook but people do argue that at least they would have some internet than no internet at all Yeah it is a very striking fact apparently there are people who've got hold of this system because I think over 30 countries are using it and they basically say they think the internet is facebook so yeah. it shows you the power of what's going on here let let's just hear some of the the arguments for and against from people involved we've got mark zuckerberg a clip from mark zuckerberg who of course runs facebook and he sensed the growing opposition to this in india and held a town hall for students at the indian institute of technology in delhi and this was late last year and this was the first question he was asked which was basically why are you so interested in india you know so the research has has shown on this that for every 10 people who get access to the internet uh, about one person gets a new job and about one person gets lifted out of poverty so there's just a tremendous opportunity in india right if if there are a billion people who are not connected then this is one of the biggest opportunities i think to uh help develop the economy here and uh and to help um alleviate poverty and and really lift up a lot of folks. You know, it's easy to talk about this as something that will be important for for India, but I actually think that connecting people in India is one of the most important things that we can do for the whole world. You know, all the things that uh entrepreneurs and students could produce if they had access to these tools, you know, everyone around the world, not just in India, but every other person in the world is is currently robbed of that opportunity. because folks don't have the opportunity that they need here to create companies or or opportunities that they want. So that's why I care about it. Uh Mark Zuckerberg there and I guess the trouble is Nigeria when you hear that is you know a lot of people are going to say well yes I'm sure he has these altruistic ideas but he'll also be looking for Facebook's interests and it they weren't really clearly stated. Right. Um I mean what he is talking about in that little clip there is the internet and I believe in that case the definition being the entirety of the internet. What we're seeing as a solution from them is an internet or a gateway to the internet via Facebook. Now I mean from a private company's perspective of course it's their prerogative to put forth such an an idea but in country in sovereign states the idea is obviously is this the best way to get people connected to the internet is this in line with the policies in place is this in line with how we want to use the internet so this is a question where even how some internet is defined is not necessarily supposed to be you know somebody curate some sites for you it's should we have some, all of the internet at a slower speed which is free and which has been argued that you know many telcos can ha- can afford to do that because you know they're investing heavily in you know spectrums you know we're moving to 4G in places like uh much of Nairobi right now so that argument especially some internet is better than none obviously everyone agrees with it and i don't believe that those who've been opposing free basics for instance are saying that no no internet for anyone until you know something else they're not being necessarily unrealistic it's how we define it's always in the detail the okay. some internet who gets to define that i'm going to do another of my- I explain as telcos these telecommunication companies that are basically hooking up with with uh, Facebook so these these this service this free basic service is done through phones and you obviously need the telecommunication company to provide the phone bit and the the 3G or whatever it is and then it's Facebook getting involved with the access as well yes coach I will say to Nigero I I certainly feel having read the regulation and and followed this discussion that that one of the key drivers is this access to all of the internet all of the time there may be 
a case to provide people with a, a limited internet. The empirical evidence does not support that yet, and there isn't enough empirical evidence to back that. How could evidence bring to bear to that question? I mean, yeah, you can take the principle, we, all the internet for all the people, yeah. but why would what evidence could you gather that would inform that issue? The evidence that I'm saying we, we have a deficiency in is whether free basics, as you suggested, is rolled out now in more than 30 countries, where it's actually doing what it, what it says on the packet. So, for example, do first-time users take up free basics, use it for a period, become accustomed to a limited part of the net, and then go further beyond what we've called the, the wall of the garden? Um, and there are still questions around that. Facebook has yeah. released some numbers, but to be frank, the numbers have been sketchy, and that's one of the challenges. We've got someone who's got some evidence, in a sense, that he's a minister in a country that's done this, and we've spoken to him. So this is Rwanda, and they've got free basics only since October last year. So as you say, information still coming in. But nonetheless, he's got some early impressions of how it's working for them. And uh, I've been speaking with Jean Philbert Nsing Imana. He's the Minister for Youth and Information Communications Technology. And he's in charge of this issue. And so on free basics in Rwanda, you get Facebook, obviously, but you get other services, I should say. You get BBC Africa, Wikipedia, Supersport, some government sites. It's free. And is it working? I asked the minister how Rwanda is finding the experience of free basics. Well, uh, we haven't carried out a detailed assessment, but we know that it has allowed more people to be online uh, because uh, you've got on one hand people who have handsets which are internet capable, but uh, who are not connected. Clearly, affordability is the issue that, and, and digital literacy are the issue that prevents people from going online, and uh, free basics has allowed to resolve those. Are you concerned with what I think is probably the main objection to Free Basics, that it's providing a limited service to the poor? The service is actually not unlimited. There is, a, in Rwanda, for instance, we have a set of 40 free services, uh, but people who've connected on Free Basics quickly turn to start using paid services. So there is no concern at any point. I think some people feel that you know, at the heart of this, Facebook must have a commercial motive for trying to presumably get access to your market. Well, I, I think that anything that grows uh, access to Internet grows the Internet market for everyone. I don't think it does so only for Facebook. But, but there is a profit motive, obviously, in, in the long term for Facebook. Facebook is a profitable Internet company, and the larger the market... Uh, the, the larger the revenues that everyone is going to make. But when I see, for instance, in my country, that there will be people who will benefit by going online for the first time, they might turn out to be Facebook clients at some point, but they are also clients of everyone else, including the uh, government services that are, we are putting massively online today. And that was Jean Philbert Nsingamana, who's the minister there in Rwanda. And I'm going to come to you in a moment, Aaron. But first, Kojo, you were saying precisely, you know, that how is this working? What do you think of what you just heard? Uh, encouraged by it. If free basics is, is, as he says, bringing more people online than ever before, I've spoken about some of the numbers, then it's encouraging. But I'm also mindful that some of the net neutrality arguments will also be a concern. And it's for governments like Jean Philbert's government in Rwanda who have to weigh up the pros and cons of, of releasing free basics. And net neutrality is this phrase that basically means, is there equal access to different users to all parts of the Internet? Yeah. Aaron Sakuba, now then, you, you know, India's taken its decision against. You just heard the Rwandan minister saying it's going pretty well there. How do you reflect on what he said? 
I would agree to a large part with what the minister said, because especially if you look at the policy landscape in India and the measures that the Indian government has tried, several successive Indian governments, rather, have been trying over the last 10 years to bring uh, internet connectivity into homes, into the cell phones of individuals, because this has been priority for several Indian governments. But they have failed because, one, this is a huge country with a, huge, with, a, with a large number of people. So it is at one level simply not feasible for the government the central government and, you know, scores of state governments to coordinate effectively and bring the internet to people's homes. You need the collaboration of the private sector. I think Facebook's initiative, Free Basics, was one such effort. And I frankly would say that I'm quite disappointed by the fact that the regulator has banned not just Free Basics, but any program that effectively uh, differentiates between prices uh, on the internet. Because we now in India at least, don't have an opportunity to pilot such a program and see the effects as to whether the results in Rwanda, for instance, could be replicated in India. I'm quite struck by your remark, though, that you know, India is too big for the government to cope. I, I mean, I think there are governments in East Asia in particular, I'm, I, I'm reading that in Malaysia and places like this, the governments have been very successful in getting internet access out to their population. Aaron's more qualified than I am, but India's a, a far bigger country than Malaysia and far more diverse Yeah, they've got Malaysia. a bigger tax base then. But it's not just the finance. The finance is critically important, obviously, but we're talking about issues of topography. We're talking about issues of poverty. We're talking about cultural issues that might prevent women getting online to their gender issues. So it's a far more complex challenge than to say the tax base is there, we can then go and roll out. I agree with you, Kozu. And the fact is... Uh, you could do this in two ways. One, you could bring physical infrastructure to homes and municipalities, uh, to schools and hospitals, so, you know, wherever you want to bring the internet through copper cables or fibre optic networks. The other way is to bring the internet through airwaves. Yeah. And the government has tried to bring the physical infrastructure down to the last mile, but it's really difficult, n- not just because of the sheer geographical reach of this country, but also the fact that you have to work with several players, several bureaucratic hurdles that need to be crossed. Yeah. And the internet is an ecosystem, you know, whether for better or for worse, has organically evolved and is not really beholden to these bureaucratic hurdles. The the whole Digital India program, for instance, which was launched by this government, sought to bring the private sector on board. I'm not really sure what the regulator's message to this initiative is. Before before we go to Nigeria, Aaron, just one more question to you. This is a nationalist government you've got. Do you think this was a, you know, we don't want big Western companies running our internet? I wouldn't say that that message would have come from the government. Th- that narrative has, in fact, permeated through this whole free basics debate. I and mean, you're right, especially the fact that free that free basics of Facebook, which is an American company, has sort of become the centerpiece of this debate. The government has remarkably stayed clear of taking a position on the net neutrality and the free basics debate. We know that the Prime Minister shares a very warm relationship personally with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, but we don't know whether that translated into official support for free basics, because this is, at at the end of the day, this is an independent telecom regulator that's taken the decision. Yeah, I think think one thing we've been encouraged by at the Alliance, Aaron, we're with you, is, is the nature of the consultation process. A million comments, the regulation itself with its preamble, logically explained explaining the reasons why they were putting in place that particular regulation speaks well in terms of the practices followed. Nigeria Sambuli, I want to bring you in and just put one point to you. In these debates, it's very likely, you know, if you've got a million comments, I presume most of them are sent by email, and there'll be, 
yeah, a group of people who won't be able to make any comments on this are those who are offline, who seem to be rather at the centre of the debate. Isn't that a bit of a problem? Ironic. Yeah, I mean, one, one glaring thing we all have to be privy to here is that the voices of those who are unconnected are largely underrepresented, if represented at all. And even their experience and their aspirations for the idea of how they would connect to the internet is not something we've seen much in terms of the debates. And there is a need for a lot of work, and this is something in countries like Kenya, following what we're seeing in not just in India, but in Chile, where they were the first country in the world to sort of define neutrality in law in some extent, to some extent. We do need to bring these voices into this conversation and I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, um, what we do fighting for the online will also borrow largely from the culture of engagement that we have. Yeah. So if it always tends to, you know, favour those who are connected or those who are louder, then, you know, you're very likely to miss out. So this is a glaring absent part of this conversation that uh, globally, really. OK, thank you all three. And we're going to wrap up this first half of the programme now, but we will be widening out the debate to broader issues about access to the internet in the second half of the programme and I should just remind you at this stage that if you want to comment on what we're broadcasting uh, the way to do it is through Twitter at bbcnhextra at bbcnhextra or you can send an email to newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk and if you ever miss an edition of the programme there is a remedy you can get the podcast and it is coming out once a week one hour one topic every week put bbc news hour extra into whatever you use to navigate your way around the internet if you're online and then you will be able to uh, download each edition every week to whatever device you select you're listening to news hour extra from the bbc world service with owen bennett jones and this week we're looking at the issue of access to the internet, who should provide access, what kind of access should be provided, should it be the job of the government, how big are the economic benefits. And our panel, we've got Aaron Sukumar, who's in Delhi, we've got Nanjira Sambuli, who's in Nairobi, we've got Kojo Bwachi, who's here in London, and we've been joined by someone from the World Bank, and that is Uwe Deichmann. He is co-director of the organisation's most recent World Development Report. It was released just in January, and it looks specifically at, here's another jargon phrase for us, digital dividends. In other words, how, what are the economic benefits of all these technologies? So, Uwe Deichmann, what sort of digital dividends are there? So the way we define digital dividends is really sort of the impacts of the Internet and related uh, digital technologies such as mobile phones on um, growth, on uh, the opportunities for individuals uh, to find better jobs, to find higher wages and so on in the labor market, and for governments to uh, provide better services to people. But uh, what the report steps away from is to try to come up with one big number that sort of quantifies these benefits because uh, we feel that most of these numbers are really not based on, on very good data because we simply don't have... Uh, enough evidence. Yeah, it's just very difficult to measure, I guess. But it's very c- difficult. But, Koji, there was a number floating around, there's, there's I think, for a, some time. That, what, it's a 10% increase in access leads to increased growth of 1.38%. I think what we're hearing is that's been discredited, probably, is it? Not, not discredited, it still holds, but in the least developed countries as well, and that's critically important. Uh-huh. So a 10% increase in penetration or internet usually in the least developed countries creates a 1.38% growth in GDP. But the WDR report, sorry, World, World Development Report, which is the World Bank report, which, says, as you've said, is particularly refreshing because it does move away from that particular number that's been used for a while and questions whether the theory that's in place actually works and and how do we create the dividends what sort of complementary analog complements i'm sure Uwe will speak to do we need to have in place in order for people to to reap the dividends that the internet can potentially bring Uwe Dijkman can you just talk us through how the internet may help 
people, you know, increase their standard of living? What, what sort of things happen that enable them to live better? Yes, so the, the report, uh, one of the uh, contributions of the report is to provide a very simple framework, um, sort of how the Internet is promoting these benefits. And uh, one area certainly is inclusion. So we say that uh, simply by having more information at hand, people will have uh, greater opportunities. And there are many examples, for instance, of farmers who are using simple mobile phones to get much better intelligence about markets, uh, so they get better prices and so on. There's a classic study of Kerala fishermen where with the simple introduction of, um, of mobile phones, fishermen could uh, basically check the prices in different markets beforehand. They increased their incomes, uh, there was less wastage and so on, and we have many examples of that. And that really brings, uh, helps also people you know, enter new markets, for instance, uh, with mobile phone records. Banks can more easily assess creditworthiness of poor people who had no access to formal financial services before. The second uh, area is sort of efficiency, simply, and that's uh, very natural to us. It's basically the Internet is making things that we've already been doing much more efficient. So we can, a uh, good uh, example is that you can coordinate and, and use your trucks and lorries and so on much more, much more efficiently. Yeah, well, let's just get some comments from, from India and from Kenya. Let's start in Kenya with uh, Nanjira Sambuli. When you hear that, do you recognise that from what you're seeing around you in Kenya? Absolutely. And I mean, even in terms of other aspects of people can also engage and participate on some discourses. I mean, in the area of service delivery, for instance, you have a government, for instance, you can engage more online and that means you have to be online to be able to raise your voice. But the fact that people can also just raise their voice and ask these questions through the Internet is a powerful amplifier. These are examples that, you know, they go beyond just um, the economic and they go into the uh, social, political and voice and agency being given to people who are yes. uh, online. I see that. But Aaron Sukumar, I could also see an argument that, you know, as you've said in, in India, this is a very, very difficult thing to do. It costs a lot of money to get everyone online. And so, you know, there will be politicians will be making choices and there's education and there's health and there are various other things to spend money on. Do you think there's any sense that the central governments have made those calculations about the relative benefits of these different things to spend money on, including internet access? If you look at the expenditure from the central government's part, I think I would say this with a lot of caveats, but I think you can say that there's generally been an increase in social sector expenditure in the last 10 or 15 years in India, which is only natural given that, uh, you know, we are concerned increasingly about the health and well-being of Indians, especially in semi-urban and rural areas. What the internet does is it simply, you know, in addition to all the things that Uwe and Nanjira talked about, it provides certain facilities and certain, you know, it enhances the standard of living of first-generation internet users to certain rights that they may have otherwise been uh, excluded from. For instance, safety. If you look at the, uh, you know, public safety standards in many mega cities in India, you know, including semi uh, mega cities as well as semi-urban areas, public safety is quite poor. Public transport is not, you know, accessible for especially women at night. And safety is usually privy, um, is a privy of the elites who have their own private modes of transportation. What the internet does is it provides an application for any internet user irrespective of his or her income or, or the nature of her 
smartphone or feature phone or whatever it is, the application simply provides her access to some form of transportation. And yeah. that transportation would usually come with some safety checks in assuring his or her safety, which was, you know, unfathomable five to ten years ago no, in India. That's a very good point. It's not just economics. I mean, there are other benefits. Koja? You know, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, statistical, empirical evidence that supports the fact that the internet helps people in development. But what we have to be mindful of also is that there are a huge number of people, as we spoke about at the start of the show, missing out on these potential benefits, and largely because of an affordability issue. No, no, I, I, guess, I guess the point we're the, trying to make is we're trying to sort of establish how important it is that these people get the, access. Then let, let me also speak to that, because you asked the question of Nehru about whether governments think it's as important as health or education. Even if you look at a global level, the recently agreed Sustainable Development Goals, Goal 9C says that in the least developed countries, everybody should have access to the internet by 2020, in four years' time. And those are globally agreed goals between governments. So the importance of the internet for development is unequivocal. I'm just going to go back to Uwe Dijkman, because I think your report, as you know, we've all heard now, for, we've just been discussing the, you know, the clear benefits of people getting access. But you're, you're saying also, I think, in this report, that it can be overstated in some respects. And there, there is another side to this. So tell us about that. Yeah, I think there's not, uh, it's not whether the benefits exist, they clearly exist. The question is whether they really exist to the extent that they should, basically, or that we expected in the, in the past. And there's been sort of a little bit of an uh, expectation that the Internet um, helps us overcome long-standing development problems that we haven't really been fixing in the last uh, three or four decades. So in education, for instance, in terms of uh, creating a good business climate in, uh, in a country and then making governments more accountable and therefore providing better services. And what the report really says is, you know, that happens in some instances, but not in many others. And then the report asks, why is this? And so then we come to this uh, this idea of what we call the analog complements to digital investments. And that's just a convenient shorthand to say that, you know, when these things are in place, when you have a good business environment, when your, your education systems are really creating skills that uh, can be complemented by technology and not replaced by technology, and when governments really have the incentive to provide better services, um, then you're actually doing really well. And then we are, that's where the internet really has uh, substantive benefits uh, on economic development and the prospects of people in, in developing countries. But when these analog complements are absent, basically, that's what we're finding is that in many cases, the, uh, the outcome and the benefits uh, are really disappointing. Yes, exactly. I mean, the internet, you, you, you can overdo this. Nigeria, Sambuli, I mean, I guess in Kenya, if you, you know, there, there are political issues. There are very big problems in all countries, including yours, which are not going to be solved by people going online, right? This is something that's very clear. Technology is not necessarily a panacea. It's just an amplifier, as Uwe rightly put it. And um, it will always amplify what it pre-exists or predated. But in the arena, say, for political expression in this country, the Internet and access to it has gone a long way in um, amplifying or really cementing the rights that are cemented in the Constitution. So they existed more on paper than they did in practice. Mm. And so people have found avenues to express themselves through the Internet. Yes, but if it amplifies rights in the way you saying presumably it also amplifies divisions and bigotry and and people wanting to have a go at each other yeah the challenges are are just as expansive as the uh, you know the opportunities it presents you know again it's amplifying what society really is and giving us an avenue maybe to even reflect on some of these things okay i'm going to move this on now to uh, another issue which is absolutely fascinating about all of this which is how it all works because when you're thinking about access to the internet of course the whole thing depends on all these cables that are put around under the sea. And I don't know if it's ever occurred to you to wonder who on earth pays for this stuff, but (laughs) someone does, and presumably they're doing it because they can get some money out of it. So we thought we could uh, just explore that a bit with Andrew Bloom. He's a journalist 
And he's the author of, so just the man to talk to, Tubes, A Journey to the Centre of the Internet. Uh, So, there are a lot of cables under sea, it turns out. I asked him, first of all, how many? It's not dozens and it's not thousands. Uh, It's hundreds. It's tough to make a complete list because uh, you don't know if you want to include only the major cables across the oceans or if you want to include all the little cables to, you know, to, to small islands and suburbs and things like that. And, and if you took a typical cable going, let's say, from the United States to Europe, how big would it be? I mean, how, how, how thick? Physically speaking, we're talking about the thickness of a garden hose or so. Uh, you know, really not very thick at all. You could hold it in your hands. Of course, in the other dimension, there are thousands of miles. What we need to know is, because this must be so expensive, who pays for that? Well, they're entirely privately owned. It used to be that they were mostly consortia of government-run telecoms. But in the last 20 years or so, there's been a shift towards more major Internet backbone operators, companies like Tata Communications or NTT, the Japanese telecommunication company, or Level 3, a big American company. And they will spend hundreds of millions of dollars to lay these cables. And hopefully they they pay back over their 20-year lifespan. But to be honest, it's never been a great business. And and who would pay, if you take Level 3 then, American company mm-hmm. putting down these things, who would pay them? Uh, they will sell circuits, as they're called, to some companies like Google or Facebook, who will now move their own data traffic around the world, but also to other telecommunications companies like DT or BT or AT&T or those kind of folks. And everyone will then resell it and resell it and resell it and slice it up. And the result for us is relatively seamless. But for the people who make the Internet, these things have to be set up kind of piece by piece. So are you saying that, you know, I pay in my home in the UK something like, I think it's probably $50 a month for Mm -hmm. Internet access at home. And are you saying that one or two of those dollars will end up with level three? Certainly, I think I think that's a fair thing to say. More than half the people on Earth have no access to the Internet at all. So these companies presumably just don't find it economic to go to certain parts of the world. Well, there are two pieces to that. There's the connection to your home. There's the local, the neighborhood or, or kind of city-level connection. But then there's the connection from your city's network to the rest of the Internet around the world. And those are kind of two different pieces. Uh, In some parts of the world, the tradition has been that the global connections are very expensive. Uh, For example, in in Africa until recently, there were only satellite cables. It's only the last 10 years or so that there were were fiber optic cables, undersea cables down the coast. So their Internet access was expensive because of the links to the entire world, in addition to the problem of the local cables. Now we're seeing the international links have grown, but we're still left to also need the, the local links, the neighborhood links to be built as well. Now then, you've written a whole book on this stuff, and it's pretty, it's pretty sort of unknown, and it's pretty interesting. So what was the most amazing fact you discovered? Uh, I think the most amazing thing was how small the Internet is. I know that sounds a bit counterintuitive, but most traffic really goes through a relatively short list, not only of cities, but even of buildings. I, I say there are about a, a dozen buildings in the world that are by far where the most traffic goes through. I, I can be almost guaranteed that our conversation right now between New York and London is passing through a building in Tribeca in New York called 60 Hudson Street and a building in the Docklands in London called Telehouse. There isn't that much to it at the international level, and I, I know that that's always a surprise to people. Well, it is a surprise. And that was Andrew Bloom on the, some of the technicalities of the Internet. I should also say that he was uh, in New York, obviously, as he mentioned himself there. So, Aaron Sakumar, it seems to me that that speaks to what you were mentioning earlier in terms of 
can governments do this stuff? And when it comes to these cables, thousands and thousands of kilometres of cables that are going around the world, it's gone to the private sector, basically. Absolutely. And off the top of my head, I cannot think of a single country where the government has taken the leadership or taken some sort of initiative to connect millions or billions of people and successfully pulled it off. Now, India is by, you know, by no means the first country or the Indian government is by no means the first government to say, you know, we are on this program, we are going to unveil this program, we are going to implement this program to connect every Indian to the Internet. Several other countries have done this. Uh, Japan has done it. South Korea has done it. The Chinese government has said it. It has all been thanks to collaboration from the private sector, simply because, as Andrew very rightly put it, it's very difficult to get governments to collaborate on laying the physical infrastructure of the internet. Well, I'm not sure what he objected to, but Kojo is here in the studio shaking his head to some of that. <laughs> no, no, I'm just... I'm, perhaps I'm, I, I'm not clear on Andrew's point about it's all private sector investment, because it hasn't been. If you look across Africa over the last few years... Not only have terrestrial fibre networks been laid by a number of governments who have stepped in largely because the private sector hasn't, in their opinion, but also some of the, the undersea cables that he mentioned have some government investment in them and at least have government agreement on those cables landing in their countries. So what's happened is government has stepped in and in many cases it's been public-private partnerships between government and the private sector. And all of that is, is very necessary in order to resolve this conundrum. It can't just be the private sector. Yeah, Nigeria, it ri- reminds me of the establishment of the post office in, in, in the UK, where the whole principle was one fee, but it goes anywhere in the country, even if it's a letter that has to go a thousand miles, it will cost the same as one that goes half a mile. And I guess that is where government comes in, is in ensuring this equality of access. Absolutely. And Kodra's right. I mean, in Africa especially, we are seeing a lot of effort that is mostly government-led. And they are reaching a point where then they are inviting the private sector or the private sector, especially the telecommunication companies, are now seeing the value proposition and now starting to step in. So it's going to be about whether the government will still set the regulations around how the quality of this Internet is going to apply or whether it will take, so to speak, the post office model, as you said, or it's gonna, we're going to slice it up so that at the end we are all connected to the Internet globally, but we are all connected to various Internet nets, I mean, defined in different ways. You can access this because you can afford this or, or, you know, that kind of thing. Let's listen to a senior American official who's involved in these issues now. It's Ambassador Daniel Sepulveda. He is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and, let's get this title, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and US Coordinator for International Communications and Information Policy in the State Department's Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, otherwise known as the Ambassador to the Internet. So given that confusing set of titles, I asked him, first of all, uh, whether the Internet could be considered in some ways an American institution. There is this claim that it is an aspect almost of Western hegemony, that the Internet all comes from the United States. Is it an American institution rather than a global one? Well, let's talk about what the Internet is, right? The Internet is an interconnected set of 80 or 90,000 independent networks. And then they interconnect using Internet protocol and the protocols that allow for networks to communicate with each other. And then on top of the Internet are built applications, of which the World Wide Web is one, email is one, search is one. And then as a subsidiary of all those applications, there are companies that build applications using this platform, of which Facebook is one, Google is one, etc., right? So there are American companies that have a very strong presence on the World Wide Web. The Internet itself, however, is not an American, it's not, it's, it's not even a singular institution. It creates 
economies of scale in a platform so large and so wide that whenever you give birth to a service or an idea on the Internet, it is born globally. That's the power of the Internet. Do you think it's fair to say, though, that some of the big American companies, you know, the Facebooks of this world, Google, have become so strong and so dominant that it is actually difficult for, let's say, an African equivalent to emerge and to compete. It's, it's almost like there is a, monopol- a monopolistic situation there. I, I disagree, and I would disagree strongly. In the first instance, the platform itself is open, right? So before there was a Facebook, there was a Friendster and a MySpace and a Tribe. And even Google tried to create its own social network. Facebook just produced a better product. If you think of Google search as a singular market, then you would be denying the existence of Yelp and any other number of subsidiary Bing and any other number of other mechanisms by which to find information on the Internet, including Facebook itself. So as to the question of whether or not a service can originate out of either the developing world or Europe or anywhere else for that matter and compete on the Internet, the Internet is designed to enable that. The biggest problem and the largest reason why you aren't seeing the deployment and development of new services from the developing world, which, A, is not by definition true. So you have Mercado Libre coming out of Brazil. You have uh, M-Pesa, which is the dominant uh, digital financial services company coming out of Africa and Kenya specifically. So, I mean, depending on how you define the Internet, depending on how you look at markets, the degree to which there's competition, it's it's a dramatically competitive market. What our companies have... Uh, The advantage that they have is first-comer advantage in the sense that the Internet was first deployed in the United States and Europe, and these companies were built over that initial period of time, and the fact that we have strong institutions that enable the access to both capital and skills necessary to make companies competitive. But the Internet itself is neither designed nor enables the monopolization of services. So you're looking at around 17 to 25 percent average access to the internet throughout the developing world. As that number grows, you will see local services and local entrepreneurs or regional entrepreneurs and regional services grow to target those markets. And that was Ambassador Daniel Sepulveda, who is with the U.S. State Department, uh, discussing, you know, the extent to which the internet is American. So I just want to go to Delhi on that, first of all, and ask you, Aaron Sakuba, you know, seen from Delhi... Does it look like an American institution, an American entity, or do you feel that the way it's used in India has made it a local entity? Well, I think, you know, the point that uh, both the ambassador and Najira made about the many internets that are going to come up, we really haven't seen that happen in India. It seems intuitive that the internet in India will be an organic product like it was in the United States. It will be driven by local language content. And there, there are several languages in India where there is presumably a very lucrative market and a very attentive audience. But we simply haven't seen that because most of the growth in the internet ecosystem has been led by American companies. This is not to say that, you know, there is some concerted effort by American players or American, you know, American institutions or other governments to sort of crowd the market out. It's just that these are the companies with the most amount of resources and capital that really crowd the market out against smaller players. You know, what I fear is that a sort of a puritanical version of net neutrality, which really sort of, you know, allows no discrimination on 
uh, the content between passing between internet pipes it's just going to favor the more powerful companies you know we were talking about governments what is the space that governments have to actively promote private companies in india or other developing economies i think it is still very much it may not be seen overtly it is very much the work and functionalities of the american companies that yes. we see in india today. well that was interesting there's a little hint of protectionism in there at the end uh, <laughs> nanjira what do you make of that I think internet protectionism is going to be a buzzword soon. Just a point that the ambassador made. I mean, the idea that the internet is designed to be open. And I think one of the the bigger battle right now is that it seems that that internet is what we are trying to, or efforts are trying to fragment it. Um, And I guess, I mean, you could say China has its own version of that. um, And that's, you know, through very concerted decisions. Mm. Now, the question becomes whether we all want to participate to this global internet that may have resulted from what was largely American institutions having an advantage towards that. Um, And of course, there are numerous benefits to that. I mean, in a globalizing economy, the question now becomes, you know, with internet protectionism, again, buzzword coming soon, whether we'll be helping or hurting the cause of economics, of social uh, and political engagement. Kojo, can I ask you to take a sort of very Olympian view of this? And we've just heard the mention of China. It's a good point because, you know, China has done it its own way and it's got its own major internet companies as a result. Do you think that is something other countries and regions maybe will look at and say you know what that could work for us i think it's it's uh, something people will look at i'm not sure it's going to be taken as as an option largely because so many governments have signed up to net neutrality which fundamentally means you can't prioritize uh, forms of content so the kind of protectionism that the jira talks about becomes ostensibly very very difficult to do but we are mindful that governments have taken action to try and stimulate the kind of local content that they believe their people want. And there needs to be more policy and regulatory tools used in order to stimulate that content because it's clearly desirable. OK, I'm going to ask a final question to all of you. And I'm, I'm trying to work out an appropriate number of years for you to forecast ahead because the internet moves so fast, it's probably a bit unfair to put it too far in the future. So instead of 50, I'm going to say 30 years. And Aaron Sakuma, in India, will everyone be connected? Well, that's literally a billion-dollar question. I'm, I wouldn't be too optimistic in the next 10 to 15 years, but perhaps in the next 30 years, I would say yes. Nanjira, can you give us your Kenyan projections? Yeah, I'm a bit optimistic about Kenya in 30 years being connected now. Whether we are able to all participate on that internet uh, to its full utility will be a very interesting thing. But I am very optimistic about the fact that that will be something that most, if not all, Kenyans will have access to. And hopefully it will have been for a greater good than some collective, you know, uh, amplification of some problems. Amplifying the good news rather than the bad news? And, and the good of society rather yep. than just the bad. Yep. The uh, and uh, Kojo Bwachi, your three-decade right, I'm, I'm look I'm, ahead. I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit. So sorry but for, you can't sorry for Arun and <laughs> Nigeria because at the Alliance for Affordable Internet, we've been looking into to how we're going to achieve these universal access goals. And, and in, in the, the most recent of our reports, we've actually made some projections about where we'll be mm-hmm. in uh, at least 20 years' time or so. So what do I hope to see in 30 years' time? I hope to see an affordable internet service. I hope to see everybody connected. I hope to see it being a tool for creating equality, one that personifies or characterizes the diversity in the world, and certainly one in which people are able to reap all the digital dividends that the internet can potentially bring. And as I said earlier, with regard to how the Web Foundation would like to see things, one that is certainly open to all or gives everyone access all of the time to all of the internet. As Tim Berners-Lee, the man who... Invented the World Wide Web. 
uh, himself said. And so thank you very much to all of you. Thank you to Aaron Sukuma in Delhi, to Kojo Bwachi here in London, to Nanjira Sambuli in Nairobi. Earlier also we heard from Uwe Dijkman from the World Bank. And that's it for this edition of NewsHour Extra. So let me just say at the end of the programme that if you want to comment, then go to Twitter at BBC NH Extra or send us an email, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. We do try to respond. No, we don't just try. We do eventually respond to all the emails you send to us. And for the podcast, you should go to your search engine or to your podcast provider and put BBC NewsHour Extra into the search box there, and you will be able to get every single edition of the programme once a week. So that's it for now. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, from Owen Bennett-Jones, goodbye.